The Jodcast, live, episode two, Attack of the Audience, with Megan Argo, David Alts, Jen Gupta, Chris Lintot, Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Neil Young, and our live studio audience. The Jodcast, December Extra Issue. Hello and welcome back to Jodcast Live, and thank you ever so much, everyone in the audience who has come back two weeks later for the recording <laughs> of the December Extra Edition. We had to make sure everyone sat in the same seats and yes, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's quite spectacularly done. So, coming up, we will answer the audience's questions in Ask an Astronomer, and we'll be getting your feedback about the live experience. But first, before all of that, here's Nick and the former Astronomer Royal and former Director of Jodrell Bank, Sir Francis Graham-Smith. Thank you very much, Dave, and thank you very much to you, Sir Francis, for coming along and answering our questions. Well, it's a pleasure to see this organization at work. It's great. Now, I have, a, I have an omission to make. Uh, when I was working here as a postdoctoral research associate, um, one of the things that you do is that you write research papers, you're supposed to, and uh, uh, they get handed around after you write them to people internal to Jodrell Bank for them to be checked. And one of my papers landed on the desk of Sir Francis here. Yeah. <laughs> and actually two of them two of them did and um, one of them came back he's, and I got some comments written very neatly on my draft and um, and he said oh, let's, let's have a chat about this and uh, you, we, we sat down in the library and he looked at me and he said you haven't actually done very much have you? <laughs> <laughs> Which was done in such a wonderful way. Um, but uh, that paper did get published. Um, <laughs> did actually get referenced very much. But it did get published. The other time, the other time that you uh, refereed internally one of my papers, all I got was a neat pencil tick in the upper right-hand corner of the cover page. Oh, well, you'd, you'd improved. And, <laughs> and I was told, I was told by my betters that this was high praise from Sir Francis. <laughs> he had just come back with a, <laughs> with a tick on my paper. So I thought, well, really, you ought to realize that I'm just getting my own back because when I was a student, exactly the same thing happened to me. <laughs> uh, I was told, well, Smith, that was a really a very good paper. There were just 50 minor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it never changed in my career as it was, um, short as it was. I had colleagues in the States who would write comments on my paper as long as the paper was itself. So you kind of wonder, well, why don't we just publish your comments and be done with it? But anyway, thank you very much indeed for coming and giving us a chat. Now, I could start off by describing you your uh, career and activities at Jodrell Bank Observatory and elsewhere, but then it'll just be me talking for half an hour, which is not really the point. Um, so I would like to ask you just to start off, please, by telling us about what it was like to work here in the early days. Oh, in the early days. That does go back a bit. You see, I, I started radio astronomy in, in Cambridge right in the very beginning when it wasn't even called radio astronomy. So um, I came here after the, the big telescope was in operation and before the Mark II telescope was in operation. And I, I had some ideas in my head as to what would be interesting to work on, um, scintillation and, and uh, other variable things in, in radio astronomy. And I was also very keen on interferometry. And I think I did uh, influence a bit the development of interferometry at Jodrell Bank based on, on what had happened at Cambridge. So um, that was my main interest. Then, of course, the interest in pulsars started up later. That, that's another really quite exciting story. Let's talk about interferometry because it was pretty much the start of this entire field of observational astrophysics, if you like, was interferometry with radio waves. And did it start in Cambridge? It, started, it started in Cambridge, yes. Um, they were starting up in Australia, in Sydney as well, actually. And interestingly, I think it derived in both places from wartime work because the people in Cambridge uh, and in Sydney had both been involved in radar in, in the war. Martin Ryle, for example, uh, was concerned with, with um, installing antennas on fighters, um, things like the bow fighter. And instead of just putting one antenna in the nose and using that as a, as a transmitter and receiver, uh, they put one in each wing. And they found that essentially they were, they were building an interferometer. He got back to Cambridge and then wanted to measure the radio waves from the sun. And he wanted to distinguish the sun from everything else in the sky. So he built an interferometer. That was about the time that I came and joined him. 
When we'd built a simple interferometer, then we found that we could pick up other things in the universe. Astonishingly, uh, I mean, nobody knew at that time that there were things in Cygnus, in Cassiopeia, Crab Nebula, in, in Taurus. And uh, we built interferometers just to detect those. Then we went on to build an interferometer which could measure accurately their positions. Accurately in those days meant a minute of arc. These mm. days it means, you know, thousandths of an arc second. How long did it take you to realize that you, well, maybe you knew right from the start, but did it dawn on you as a gradual thing that you were basically starting a whole new field of, of observation? Um, I don't think we really understood the way we fitted into astronomy. We, we used to think that we were looking at our own universe and we really rather disregarded what everybody else in astronomy was doing. <laughs> we learnt that lesson gradually as we began to integrate what we were doing with what everybody else was doing. And uh, we, we, we slowly became to think of ourselves as part of astronomy. Um, of course, we always thought we were the most important part, but then everybody does, everybody don't does, they? Yes. What was the remind us of the prevailing review of the cosmos back in the time when you were starting work on interferometry? Because it was very different to what we understand now. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I think the the galaxy was about as far as you went in the universe in really uh, um, uh, understanding anything and getting a picture of the universe. Uh, there were obviously other galaxies as well, but there was no idea that you could ever observe things in the, the really distant uh, or really early universe. Uh, there were, of course, theories. Um, there were plenty of people around. Uh, we used to talk to McCray quite a lot. Uh, and uh, there was um, Hoyle and Bondi. They all had their own ideas about the universe. But there was very little observational work, any evidence to go on. So that I think we were more interested in the objects which we saw, which were mostly in the Milky Way. The fact that one of them, which was the Cygnus one, was a long way away was a thing which I, I think really sort of didn't um, uh, impinge on us until we got, say, about 50 extragalactic sources and began to realize that they fitted together as a, as a picture and that we could say, um, well, if we've got Cygnus A, one of the brightest sources, is that far away, then we're going to see things a lot further away again, and began to, began to put together a kind of a statistical picture, and then uh, quite soon after that, we found we were talking about the universe as a whole. It, it just sort of dawned on us bit by bit. And how were these observations received by... We had a lot of fun because, uh, I mean, we, we, we thought, I mean, whenever you're in a, a situation like that, you think that you've got all the answers and nobody else has got any answers at all. So, uh, for example, uh, well, the outstanding example was uh, Martin Ryle, who thought that he really had the key to the universe, which he did, and Fred Hoyle, who thought that he understood the, um, uh, the cosmology of the universe, which he did. And the two uh, didn't quite fit together. So, <laughs> so there was a, a, a pretty hefty clash of outlooks for that for that bit, yes. And it, it went on for some time. It was quite exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sparks did fly, as I recall, yeah. from the histories, yes. Tell us a little bit about um, the move to Manchester then. Your work, early work here at Manchester. My, my move to Manchester. Oh, well, I was, I was astonished. I was given the first job that I ever had. Um, I, I, in Cambridge, I was existing on various grants and fellowships, as everybody has to these days, and I, and I, I was no exception. Um, and then I was offered the job of, of sitting in a chair in Manchester. And uh, I could really uh, hardly refuse. Manchester was very remote from Cambridge. You know, it's a very inward-looking society. Perhaps I should be careful how I say that. <laughs> no, I think you can know that. <laughs> but um, from Cambridge, to move to Manchester seems as though we're moving to the far north. Uh, eventually, we got it on a map and realized it was more west than north <laughs> and became reconciled to it. And, of course, uh, I now regard myself as a perfect... Well, uh, northerner, mid Midland northerner. <laughs> so certainly, I can imagine that the uh, the the, uh, the the centres of intellectual life in Great Britain seem to be sort of, uh, 
more towards uh, down south, let's say, between Oxford and Cambridge. And so Manchester is being, uh, has always had that industrial pedigree of being, uh, a, a, sorry, a, a center of industrial work and research. But to come and do astronomy up in Manchester. Well, um, I think this brings me on to a, a, a story that hasn't been told much in public, but I can because there's a member of the Royal Greenwich Observatory, David Calvert, in, in the audience, and he reminded me at the time when the observatory was at Hurstmansoo and the Research Council wanted to shift it and put it next door or within a university. And after some deliberation, they came down to the idea that it might be either Cambridge or Manchester. And um, there seemed to be quite a, a, a difficult choice to make. So the Research Council made a, a serious mistake. They actually asked the people who worked at Hurstmansu where they would rather go to. <laughs> and they asked their wives as well. Uh, oh. and, they, <laughs> and they put a lot of them into an aeroplane, flew them up to Manchester to have a look. And, of course, they were all expecting, you know, a, a dirty industrial north. They arrived on a spring day when, uh, you know, the cherry trees were out. They took the wives to have a look at uh, nursery schools. They took some of the young chaps to hike up into the hills and see how marvelous it was. And they went home a bit baffled. And they eventually decided to have a vote on it and voted to go to Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but the... Um, the, the observatory might well have come to Manchester, and I think if it did, it would probably still be in existence. As you know, when it got to Cambridge, it lasted only a few years and was eventually packed up. Mm. Yeah. That was a remarkable history. I mean, the times that uh, we're talking about here, apart from, apart from the state of knowledge of, of, of astronomy has changed so much, but also attitudes about what a research institution is and where, where work like this can be done. Uh, Bernard Lovell himself, I mean, his... His work in in Manchester, coming from Bristol, it was a, a decision which I'm not sure if it was it was considered uh, strange or odd that he should. Well, he, he, he could uh, he could tell you that story in detail. Uh, yes, of it was uh, <laughs> it was um, a question of where Blackett was working mm. and where Bragg was, and uh, uh, this this was an opportunity. I mean, at that stage, you grab any opportunity you can. I mean, I I don't remember ever really t seriously turning anything down, uh, and uh, if I was I was offered a job in Manchester, well, yes, I, I was. Uh, offered a job in Hurstmansu to run the Royal Greenwich Observatory. Well, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And the reason for that, of course, was that um, there was the chance of building the new optical observatory in the Canary Islands and on La Palma. And that was just too good to miss. Mm. Fantastic work. One thing which uh, I'll go back to a little bit about, uh, about you being a former astronomer royal, uh, but it's I don't know. When I, I first visited Cambridge some some years ago, and I was fresh off the boat, if you like, from New Zealand. I was just visiting, and I, I bowled up to um, Sir Martin Rees's door, knocked on it, and said, "Hello, I'm Nick from New Zealand. You're the Astronomer Royal. Hi." Uh, and he was very polite. Because <laughs> he, it's um, <laughs> uh, the only thing he can do, I think, is be polite. Um, and I'll ask I'll ask you the same question I asked him, which was, "What does the Astronomer Royal actually do?" Oh, he doesn't have to do anything at all. <laughs> mind, mind you, he isn't paid for it either. And uh, it's roughly the same answer he gave. Doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it's compared with being poet laureate, but I believe the poet laureate gets a butt of malmsey a year or some such thing, and has actually a designated place in in uh, ceremonial processions. And we've never actually quite managed that. Arnold Wolfendale, who was uh, an astronomer royal after me, um, he decided he really ought, ought to rectify this, and I think he was getting as far as designing some sort of medal that he could hang round his neck and ceremonial things. But we've never had anything like that, actually. The, the thing is, you can do almost what you like with it, and Martin Rees, to his great credit, has used the, the position to talk about astronomy a great deal, and uh, he has influenced the course of science, I think, quite considerably. If you go back to the time of Woolley, then the Astronomer Royal was a recognized figure all over the world. After all, the Astronomer Royal and the director of Royal Greenwich Observatory were one and the same person. 
And the Royal Greenwich Observatory at that time was vitally important in navigation all around the world. So he was a personality. And it's said that when Woolley turned up at a meeting overseas, they would just roll out the red carpet for him, you know. I never actually experienced that. (laughs) (laughs) A shame. Now, let's move to um, your other... One other research uh, interest of yours, and that's pulsars, in particular the crab pulsar, which has a a long and interesting history of observation here. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we've been observing it for 40 years, and uh, there there are some odd things about its behavior. I mean, by and large, it spins around at 30 times a second. It's losing some of that enormous energy it's got as a rotating body. It's got a fantastic amount of energy. It's also got a strong magnetic field. So it's like a um, a power generator. You can imagine going into a, a, a power station and seeing this generator humming around at 30 times a second. Well, this one's a bit bigger and a bit bigger field. Uh, <laughs> so it's losing energy. And we can watch this happening as it slows down. It... Um, has slowed down from, I think, just over 30, about 30.2 times a second, down to about 29, while we've been watching it. Um, and there are some little hiccups in that, which are very interesting, and we're trying to write a paper on it. I've been uh, using the results, which Andrew Lyne largely collects, and uh, I, re- I first wrote a draft, I think it was about five years ago, and I said, Let's call it 35 years of crab observation. Well, I just retitled it the other day as 40 years. It still isn't out. And I daren't show it to you for internal refereeing. I might, <laughs> I might suggest we want to push forward that publication. You know, just, let's, get that, let's get that out there. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But um, it, it is absolutely fascinating. Of course, while, while I've been here, the um, new systems for... Uh, surveying and detecting pulsars have been put into action, largely using the radio telescope in Australia at Parks. And um, in that collaboration, more than half of the known pulsars have been discovered and published, uh, allowing a lot of statistical work on where they are, um, where they came from, um, what's going to happen to them, and even more exciting from many people's point of view, what is the physics of what happens inside them? Mm. I mean, there you've got an object, the mass of the sun, and only about the size of a city. It's, uh, you know, 20 kilometers across or something. And inside that, the state of matter is such that you can only possibly get anywhere near it in the Large Hadron Collider, which we just heard about in the last podcast. So that um, you can do physics by standing well back from these energetic objects and trying to find out what they're doing. Also, um, strangely, outside this solid body, there is a kind of an atmosphere which is very, very energetic. We call it the magnetosphere. And somewhere in that is the source of the radio waves. Now, radio waves are the way in which we observe these things, the silly thing is that after 40 years, we still don't really understand how they're generated in the uh, in the neutron star atmosphere. Extraordinary. If we knew that, and if we could emulate it, well, my gosh, we'd have a really good radio transmitter. <laughs> and the drug cars could go out across the universe. <laughs> Splendid idea. But it is, uh, ever since neutron stars were postulated and, you know, the, a basic model was formulated, Later observations were shown to uh, agree with that model. We still don't understand an awful lot about the physics going on inside and, like you mentioned, outside uh, the neutron star. Um, and you mentioned, you alluded to it just uh, earlier on, about um, these glitches in the, the Pulsar Times. Tell us a little bit about these glitches and what could possibly be the cause. Well, solid-state physicists, uh, or rather, should we say, low-temperature condensed matter physicists, do understand something about it, if they um, make a a little pot of liquid helium, very, very cold, and spin it, it doesn't spin as a whole in the normal way as you can stir a cup of tea and you can see the whole thing going round. Instead, it breaks up into a whole lot of separate little vortices. And if you add the number of vortices up, it'll tell you how fast it's spinning. But it isn't spinning as a whole. Now, you can only do that in a lab in a tiny little bit. But that's what's happening inside the neutron star because it's got an outside 
which is solid, a solid crystal, largely made of iron, um, and that's about a kilometer thick. The remaining nine kilometers down to the center of it is liquid, and it's largely a sea of neutrons, and they're so compressed that they can't help being superfluid, like the superfluid helium in our laboratory. So spin the neutron star 30 times a second, and amazingly, it isn't all going round. It is just uh, threaded with uh, little vortices, some hundreds of them every square millimeter. And uh, as it slows down, so the density of these things has to, has to fall because it's the density of the vortices that tells you how fast it's spinning. Slows down, vortices have to move out. Well, can they? They have a curious habit of attaching themselves to this crust. So you've got a solid crust inside a network of vortices which are clamped on to the, the crust. And so the crust goes slower and slower and the vortices don't move. That's funny because the density of the vortices tells you how fast it's going. So you've got an inside which is spinning faster than the outside. Well, that can't go on. It can't go on for long. So eventually something goes ping, and the uh, vortices suddenly move outwards. That's a glitch. And we see that as a, as a sudden change. You in the... see that as a sudden change in the rotation. That's why um, this, this telescope is, is being used um, when it's not on what some people think are more important things of uh, interferometry and so forth, <laughs> when it's used in its main function which is looking at <laughs> which is looking at uh, pulsars it's timing the pulses from some hundreds of pulsars and watching the way they slow down and the way uh, these glitches occur you would never uh, in the laboratory be able to create a situation where you can observe the vortices clutching hold and then letting go in the way that you can in, in the pulsar. Now that's just one example of the kind of physics that you can do uh, in a pulsar just by watching, uh, and you can't do it however much you, you build a great big accelerator or a really cold cryostat. Do you need 35 years or 40 years to, to see these glitches, or is it over a shorter time scale? Well, it's interesting. If you, I was just looking at the record of the timing of the Crab Pulsar and plot and a graph which is plotted um, of its rotation speed against time. Now, uh, that graph is absolutely stuffed with observation points, but after about three or four years, there's a gap. And then it takes on again after another gap of three years and it keeps going. Now, what happened, I think, after about three years, we just got a bit bored. <laughs> but after a while, we realized we might be missing something. So we started up again. And it's been exciting ever since. So we've never given up again. It's brilliant. I, I, I could sit here and ask questions for hours on end, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up there. So we'll say thank you very much to you uh, now for taking the time to speak to us. And ladies and gentlemen, Francis Graham Smith. Thank you very much, uh, Sir Francis and Nick. It's great to have you back asking our questions again. Great to be back. And now we're going to move on to everyone answering your questions. So we have a not, live... Hang on, not Nick's questions. No, not Nick's questions especially, <laughs> but it's just... It, it was... I'm, I'm clutching at segues here. Um, so now we're going to be answering your questions. If you're on Twitter, if you're in the studio audience, you have a panel of astronomers and me. So I'm going to sit back <laughs> while you ask our panel of experts your questions. If you have a question, please make your way to the microphone. Uh, what is a meteorite actually made of? That's the silence. There's nobody now. I'm going to go with Chris. Okay. Um, well, it depends on the meteorite. That's the, the main thing. So uh, some of them are iron and just pure iron. So they're incre when you get one of these, they're incredibly heavy. Um, some of them are made of stone, and some of them are a little more unusual. But the nice thing is that by work, looking at what they're made of, we can work out where they come from. So the iron ones and most of the stony ones come from the asteroid belt. 
So they're bits of asteroid. But some of them have, are made of more unusual things, and we can work out that they come from Mars or the Moon. So we've actually got bits of Mars and the Moon down here on Earth um, from meteorites. But you have to be very, very lucky to find one of those. I think there are about 20 or so of each uh, in the entire world. So the answer is mostly iron, bits of stone, and sometimes bits of Mars. I think the best places to actually search for those are in the Antarctic as well. That's right. Not because more fall there, but just because if you see a rock in Antarctica, it's a meteorite. <laughs> so they send people out just walking across the ice to look for rocks. Because another place is they call the meteor wrongs when they pick up just what is a rock. <laughs> a meteorite. My favourite, there was a one in, um, in Illinois in the US not so long ago that landed, went through somebody's house and landed in his washing basket. <laughs> so you can find them anywhere. Did he have to do his washing again? I don't know. We'll find out. I'll report back. Shall we have a question from Twitter? Yeah. Yeah, let's go for it. This is from Astron Lofar on Twitter. They ask, what happened before the Big Bang? (laughs) (laughs) Starting easy there. Can't tell you. (laughs) I believe it was a disc world. (laughs) I think one of the things that uh, we can say is that we really don't know and we never really will know. And... One of, the, one of the things about science for me is that we have to... We're always trying to make better and better models of the world we see around us so that we can understand better um, uh, the world and the universe. But we also have to admit that we do have limitations. And for us to actually hold our hands up and say, we're never going to know, I think actually gives science... Um, some sort of humanity for me. It's not just trying to explain absolutely everything. But wouldn't it be great if we could work it out? Yeah, it would yeah. be great. But I could disagree with Dave, although now I find myself against humanity. <laughs> You're actually a cyborg, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I must kill you. Yeah, I was, go- I was going to do a voice and then thought, no, not, again, not against Dave. Um, it should be pointed out that the last time I was on a stage with Dave, he was in a skirt. Um, true. So, now. so today is in, in, an improvement. Uh, Has anyone but, actually seen him stood up? <laughs> just boxer shorts. Uh, but all I want to say was that you you have to think about what the Big Bang is, and if you run backwards, what what it is is the point where our theories break down entirely, and this is acquired, I think as we talk about it, as science communicators and as average, this mystical sense that there was something amazing that happened. You know, there was this singularity where the density of the universe was infinite. That's what the theory tells you. But it's not that at all. That's the sign that the theory is broken down. So right now we know absolutely nothing about the Big Bang because we have no theory that can describe the universe then. That doesn't mean that we're necessarily never going to have one. And it also means that we neglect signs that we have now about what that point and the time before it might have, if there was such a thing, might have been like. So, for example, we have a universe that always increases in entropy. So whenever you have a system, it tends to disorder. So this is the, the classic thing of um, if you if I show you a film of breaking an egg, it makes sense in our universe if I play the film forwards, but if I play the film backwards, it looks ridiculous because you've gone from a state of disorder to a state of order as the egg sucks itself back together. You can tell that wasn't something that happened in our universe. Um, And so for that to be true, the universe originally must have been in a really low entropy state so that we can evolve through time to the state we're in now. So that tells you, you know, whatever the theory is, I would like it to explain that. Mm -hmm. You know, so whatever existed before needs to give us an explanation for that feature of our universe. So that's one thing. I don't know what that theory is. I will never work out what that theory is. I can be sure I won't get there. But, you know, you d- we don't know that the theory... We know our theories don't work. Somebody will come along and overturn them, and there may be... There will be a simple answer, whether it's the Discworld or something else. <laughs> um, we wait to see. Hopefully some of the younger members of the Jodcast Live audience will... Yes, I'm looking solve at you. ...solve the universe yeah, for us. Because we're stuck. So... <laughs> um, as... Tom Lehrer had this wonderful line about Mozart, but I feel like applying it to Einstein, which is that when Einstein was my age, he'd done most of his best work. In Tom Lehrer's case, you know, when he... I've screwed that up, never mind. You'll cut that out, right? The Lehrer line is, when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for three years. It doesn't work with Einstein. Sorry, you'll cut that out, right, Stuart, yeah. if I buy you beer? Let's go on the outtakes. I'm leave it there, yeah. um, Any other questions from the audience? <laughs> I think so. I think so. We've got a question. I'm Jerry Stone. Uh, I'm going to take advantage of Chris. So we have these 
spiral galaxies and barred spirals and so forth. And yet, if you take a large bowl of, say, some sort of milky type uh, um, fluid and spray a line across that bowl and then start stirring it, that line will stretch into a curve like we see the barred spars. And if you keep on stirring it, the stuff in the center has a much greater angular velocity than that on the outside. And so the line completely breaks up. So how come we do not see that and we actually still see the spirals as spirals when we would expect that the inner part of the galaxies would be rotating much faster than the outer part. So this is a well that was a well-known problem in dynamics that you know how do we explain spiral arms because if it behaved like your experiment then indeed you, you what you actually see if you stir very carefully is you get a winding up so the spiral winds itself around the center. And the answer is that spiral arms don't work like that at all. They work like traffic jams on the M25. So stars enter and leave spiral arms. Um, in the same way that cars enter and leave traffic jams. So to imagine this, imagine being on the M20... Sorry, Chris, can I, in fact, have a video for you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I should explain, before we get into this, for those of you um, in the audience, the M25 is a big road in London. It's, uh, <laughs> um, and This is really good. Yeah, this, this is it. So this is... So this is galaxy simulation using a traffic jam. So all the cars are happily going round and round. And I haven't seen this video, so something's going to happen? Yes, yeah, it's basically... Stuart, why don't you talk us through it? So the car drivers are all just told to drive at constant speed, but you see some of them catch up with cars in front and some of them slightly get delayed behind. That then knocks on through the, the rest of the cars and you get a traffic jam moving backwards around the circle. So the cars, or the stars, are all moving this way around, yet the traffic jam itself isn't a real thing, it's just a, an accumulation of stars is moving the opposite way around, so you see they're getting really jammed at the far side now. So cars are leaving from the front of the jam and joining in at the back, and so the jam itself moves around. So think of the jam as the spiral arm, yeah. and you've got star. It's, it's a place where there are more stars. The stars at the front are, being, uh, are moving off, and stars at the back are jamming into it. And that's so, the kind of wave we've got. Yeah. And you don't get this winding problem. Right. So by wave. analogy, the, the spiral arms continue, but they're not always made up of the same stars. Correct. Absolutely. And in fact, people have looked at possible, you know, it's a dodgy area and we don't have good statistics, but people have looked on the possible effects of, on the solar system of entering and leaving spiral arms. Because effectively, sometimes we're in a traffic jam and sometimes we're not. Thanks for the video, Stuart. That's cool. We, we were actually, Stuart and I actually thought about doing that ourselves here at Jodrell out in the, the visitor centre car park, just getting a whole bunch of cars and just driving around the circle. Well, we've but got 50 people. They're all going to be trying to leave. <laughs> this way. What did you do tonight? Oh, we made spiral arms. Yeah. Oh, we could put light, you could put your headlights on it. It could be at night. Oh. <laughs> We'd need a helicopter to film it, though. No, we could oh, climb at the I link tower. Anyway. <laughs> Turn the lights on when you hit the jam. Star formation. <laughs> Very good. We'll stop now. We've got to do that. I know. <laughs> Any more questions? We have another question. From, oh, we've got a question from the audience. We'll go on audience on, questions. Hang on, this man has later. written his question out. That means it's going to be a difficult one. <laughs> no, okay. I don't think so. Phil Murphy, um, what is the difference between absolute and apparent brightness? Yeah, brightness of stars and things is measured in magnitudes, one of these crazy old units that astronomers have been using for many, many years and are really looking at the modern way we do things are quite silly, but they make sense to astronomers. So magnitude is a, is a logarithmic scale because it works on the way, um, the response of your eye. And the absolute magnitude is the magnitude something would have if it was at a fixed distance from the Earth. So the apparent magnitude is how bright it it actually appears to us here on Earth, wherever it happens to be in the universe. But if you want to know how bright it really is, you work out how far away it is, and then you calculate how much luminosity you'd get, how, how bright it would be if you stuck it at 10 parsecs. Um, and that's what gives you your absolute magnitude, your absolute brightness. And a parsec, just for people, is about 3.2 or so light years in distance. Yeah, it's another one of those crazy astronomy units that yeah, are a bit silly, really. So, so for instance, the sun has an absolute, um, an apparent magnitude of something like minus 27 or something. Low is good. It's like golf handicaps. Right? Yeah. So minus <laughs> yeah. numbers mean very bright. So it's got obviously a very large apparent brightness because it's in our sky and lights everything up. Its absolute magnitude is a lot less. So 
if you were to put it at 10 parsecs or about 30 something light years, it would look a lot dimmer, obviously. And if you want to compare different objects, then you put them at a fixed distance to see how intrinsically bright they are compared to each other. Actually, in order to get an absolute magnitude of a star or a source, you need to compare it with a reference uh, at the same sort of distance away, so you can actually get that value. Sorry for the noise outside, if anyone can hear that. We're getting a bit warm in here, so we've got the door open. And that was a plane. (laughs) (laughs) It's just because I am actually wearing a skirt. (laughs) (laughs) There was another another question from Twitter. Um, Okay, a question from Honorary Spock saying, when do you think people will go to Mars? Dave, when do you think people will go to Mars? Uh, well, the, uh, the line that I use in the planetarium is that uh, we're hoping to get men on Mars, or, or women, indeed, um, in the 2030s. So anyone at school at the moment could be going to Mars. I'm looking at you children. <laughs> um, that's, that's the line I usually take. Chris, would you like to go to Mars? I, I'd go. The problem is that the, hard, the, pro- the question is... A- when can we get people to Mars? Because the hard bit is getting them back. Um, I, I met a NASA engineer with a plan when I was last in uh, Houston at the, the Johnson Space Center down there, and he thinks he can get a Mars mission for a twentieth of the cost anyone else in NASA thinks. But there's a catch. And the slogan for his project, because he's got a brochure and he's trying to get NASA to sign in, sign on, is the slogan is one man, one vision, one way. <laughs> uh, you send somebody... It's actually, he's thought it through. You go there, that you've got enough stuff to keep you alive for two years. And every two years, which is... You get a good launching opportunity for Mars every two years. You send another ship with either somebody else or some supplies. So you can stay alive on Mars. Uh, you just don't ever get to come home. And I'd go. I'm not he's sure. got a long list of people signed up. I'm not sure I'd like to rely on the funding yeah. situation back on Earth to keep you supplied with food. I would want access to Twitter as well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could exist without Twitter. But apart from that... I read a book once. Did you? Yes. <laughs> this is before the internet? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they had okay. these things called books, you know, in big libraries. Um, and it was by a Russian author. And um, he had worked out uh, the, the chemistry and the logistics of sending people to Mars uh, quite some time ago, which followed the similar kind of model. You sent off a rocket first with uh, the equipment required to produce uh, water and oxygen on the surface of Mars by itself automatically. Then you arrive and uh, step into your nicely warm and um, oxygenated uh, home on Mars, and you could have this sort of uh, shuttle system, a cycle of, of people coming and going quite well. And the strongest point I remember this author making was that the technology existed well back in the time. It was just a matter of, of uh, dedicating yourself to doing it yeah. and, uh, and going ahead. You didn't need uh, particularly, uh, or, or sorry, rather, technology which had not been developed. Well, there are, there are two technological problems. One is surviving radiation on the way mm. there, which you could think up some solutions to. The other is landing a large thing on Mars is a problem that hasn't been solved yet. On the moon, you've got no atmosphere, so you can use rockets. It works very well. On the Earth, you've got a thick atmosphere, so you can come down like the Apollo astronauts did um, with parachutes, or with, with a heat shield and then parachutes. On Mars, neither quite works. There's a thin atmosphere, but it's not thick enough to... It's, thi- it's thick enough to prevent you doing a lunar-type landing, and it's um, too thin to allow you to land like... The Apollo astronauts did. So that's the major technological hurdle, is getting down. It's whether we want to do it. Because the question which we're not answering was when, right? And I'm, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you can hit whatever timescale you want, I think, for Mars. 10 years is a minimum. If you say now you're going to do it and you put the money aside now. But, you know, if you asked any one of us in our day jobs what we'd spend 50 billion on, I suspect that you wouldn't get a single manned mission because for any given scientific return, you can make a lot of um, hay out of robots and robotic probes. It's all the extras that come with manned spaceflight. So there are all sorts of issues here, and now I'm I'm wittering. And of course, we know what happens to the first base on Mars anyway, so (laughs) it all ends badly. There's actually quite a worrying statistic as well. I think it's about only two-thirds of... uh, the combined, the total number of missions which have been like led for Mars uh, have been successful. So it's just a third over of them. half. Is it just over half? See, I mean, there's that human factor of risk that you need to take into account whether you actually want to take it and say, you could die, you've got a 50-50 chance. 
I'd still go. Amazing. Would you? How many of the panel would yeah, go? 50, go. 50, 50 odds and you don't get to get, <laughs> get come home. Anyone? I don't have to pay to... You don't have to pay. No. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that the European Space Agency is doing is quite recently they asked for volunteers to be locked up for, I think, over 500 days to um, see what happens to people, what would happen to them on the way to Mars, because that's about how long it would take to get there. And we know there's always going to be someone who goes insane and tries well, to kill the rest of the crew. I mean, we know that be from sci-fi, yeah. right? <laughs> Sounds like doing a PhD at George Bain. <laughs> <laughs> you guys ever seen the, the movie Moon? Yes, oh, that's oh. fantastic. Oh, that would be really interesting, yeah. Because you're saying like the Mars direct sort of mission, so I mean... Imagine getting a load of clones, right? You send them in a spaceship over there, and there's nothing about it. And, um, well, yeah. Your it would be just like the Jodcast. Those of you at home won't realise that all the panel look identical. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Stuart is in a black T-shirt, not a blue one. Mm. Being different. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I just love the idea of Mars Direct. It sounds like some sort of mail-order company. <laughs> <laughs> mail-order chocolate company. Mm, that's weird. <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? Hang on, this is a professional. <laughs> so we now have Paul Miyagawa from CERN, who's about to ask us a question, hopefully not about what he does. No, it wouldn't be that mean. Okay, um, the question is fairly prosaic, I guess. It's more planetary rather than stellar-based. But I mean, the Earth's axis of rotation is close to perpendicular to its plane of orbit. And I th- think there's a, one planet that has its axis of rotation in line with its orbit why do these differences come up and which is more stable or is either one inherently more stable nick i'll have i'll have a crack at this one <laughs> i taught i taught um basic astronomy yeah. hey you said i taught i taught i saw it. <laughs> <laughs> there are these pre-programmed landmines when you're from here <laughs> is that the time <laughs> <laughs> I have a, yes, beer o'clock. Right. Yes, um, from what I recall, um, there, there, are, there are some theories as to why uh, some planets have a very tipped-over rotation axis compared to its uh, the plane of its orbit, and that is to do with the formation of the planets in the solar system from the protoplanetary cloud. And um, it's uh, the, the wrong way of thinking about how planets formed is in a very calm, relaxed environment where a little bit of gas over here forms into a planet, and a little bit of gas over there forms into a planet. Um, the theory is that lots of gas formed into lots of little bits and pieces, planetesimals, and then they hit each other for a long time. And um, as time goes on, those things which are hitting each other get bigger and bigger and bigger until um, some of them coalesce into planets themselves and some of them are left alone for the remainder of their lives, more or less. Um, but uh, as, the, as that coalescence uh, proceeds, those things which are coalescing get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can imagine the point where one protoplanetary blob of stuff gets hit by something which is roughly the same size as it and gets smacked over. So you end up with a range of rotation axes with respect to the orbital plane. I think that's... That sounds pretty good. The two problem children of the solar system are Uranus and Venus. So Uranus, the tilt's 98 degrees, so it's just passed um, on its side, and Venus is backwards, so it rotates in the opposite direction to everything else, almost 180. Um, and, yeah, the idea is that these are the results of collisions in the early solar system, which sounds vaguely plausible, I think. As we begin to see, we're beginning to see similar effects in protoplanetary disks. Now we can see them directly. We've seen uh, there's a fantastic result a few months ago which detected essentially um, the leftovers from a collision within a disk. It was silica in, in gl- glass form, essentially. So the idea is that this is the result of bashing stuff together and melting it. So we see these processes happening. The other part of your question was about which is more stable. I think once the disk has gone away, um, I don't think it makes any difference at all. And you've then got your locked-in, barring a bizarre large Huge collision. collision. Yeah, yeah you, you've got locked-in uh, axes. The early solar system being dynamic is interesting because I hadn't realised the theory is that Uranus and Neptune have swapped places several times uh, in the early solar system because Saturn starts off in the wrong place. Jupiter and Saturn both move and interact and every time Saturn comes out, it forces uh, Uranus and Neptune to swap places. And the computer simulations show this ridiculously dynamic early solar system uh, that settles down into the one we've got today. So it's the result of quite a chaotic formation process, just like the Jodcast. (laughs) (laughs) are we going going to suddenly flip our direction of irritation (laughs) (laughs) 
But it's, it's true, though. I mean, it, was, it was quite chaotic. I mean, there was some work on um, the Earth-Moon system a while ago, which showed, well, these guys got into their computer, wrote some code, and found that the system was actually chaotic, meaning that all of a sudden, uh, sorry, sorry, if you took away uh, the Moon, uh, the Earth uh, rotation axis could flip quite dramatically during its time. And that's quite disturbing to think about that. Um, but it's Mars the, wobbles as well. Yeah. We, we know climate, well, the, the idea is climate cycles on Mars are linked to the wobble of the axis. So you might have had times when Mars had seasons, and you might have had times when Mars didn't, and that affects what happens to the ice and whether there's water on the surface and all sorts of things. And there's a connection with habitability of planets too, because um, Earth is odd in that it's got a very large moon compared to its size, as most of you probably know. Uh, but that's got an effect on its dynamics in that it stabilizes the rotation axis for a significant period of the planet's life. So having a planet that doesn't all of a sudden go spin, 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 oh, I'm going to spin that way now, is probably, is probably quite good for evolving life. Um, <laughs> so the, one, one theory is that in order to find a planet which is suitable for life, as we know it, Jim, uh, is to uh, demand that it has a relatively large moon, which is an interesting thing, which I'll stop talking about now. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, and thank you to the panel. And to the audience, indeed, for your questions, and over on Twitter and Ustream. Thank you. So now we're going to move to your feedback. And uh, audience, if you have any feedback for us, please move over to the microphone again. They're still here. So uh, they are still here. Yes. some kind of feedback. Yes. But we did lock the doors. <laughs> we didn't tell the code out, did we? No. <laughs> and do we have uh, feedback from Twitter as well about their live Jodcast Live experience? Okay, on Twitter, people are saying they would like another Jodcast Live. Okay. <laughs> so we've done more. Uh, audience, do you want another Jodcast Live? Yeah. Yes! Would you like to go home first? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear anything there. Thinking about it. Can I just say that over on Twitter, Honorary Spock says that listening to the Jodcast on Ustream and watching it has is better than watching the football. So there you go, Tim. <laughs> he didn't say that bit. I added in the bit about Tim. I think it's been great. Yeah, it's been good. Yes. Really good. Is there, you notice that the people who said it was really good aren't the people who took two days stressing out about how on earth to set this up. I just rocked up this morning from Birmingham. So. I said two days. I think I'll need a few days to recover and then I'll tell you then. I'm quite glad we're not doing another one this year. <laughs> Ooh, too long. Um, the, the question the, is, how long does it take us to do the edit? So it really depends on the interviews. Editing a Jodcast. Ah, oh, dear me. Well, in, in the early days, the, it was quite easy. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> did so you ever do me. any of them? Yeah, he did a couple did at the beginning. I one, and I didn't actually have anyone else to, to bother with. I was doing the presenting. So it it's, got, it's got more and more complicated as time has gone on, because we're now so distributed across the planet Earth. <laughs> Getting and we're distributed in time, bringing it all together, organizing what might be on an episode of the Jodcast. We're nowhere near as organized as the sky at night. Just bringing all that audio together and then putting it together in the right place, making sure that we've actually it makes sense in some way. I hope it does make sense on the final thing. I've usually then heard it four times through, so I'm slight my brain's gone mad and I have no idea what anyone's saying anymore by the end of it. Um, but my, my basic thing is it takes about four times longer than the audio to edit length of the audio and we talk for too long the, the, you might think the chatter on a jodcast is too long uh, it's actually eight minutes of the whole show is chatter and um, <laughs> waffle <laughs> but we, actually, we actually record an hour which then has to be chopped down to eight minutes Dave and I think we should have our own spin-off show with us just talking I think it would be a, a big hit on the <laughs> although, internet although it is actually Jodwood <laughs> <laughs> There was a suggestion of Jodcast late night. <laughs> Hang on, that's a bit close. <laughs> it, it is worth it noting. Is, it is pretty late night down here. It's one a.m. <laughs> we we have managed to do um, Jodcast recordings in about fifteen minutes. When yeah. when Jen and I were out there in Milan outside the central station, we got it. We got it done. But I did have a flight to catch. Yes. <laughs> and it helped that the plan was already sorted. Usually, yes. we've still got the plan. Um, under edit as we're recording it so things move around and we have to re-record what we've just said to make it make sense yes but it's it's so much fun so it's a long time if anyone would like to take on the job (laughs) (laughs) 
So if you have any more feedback for us, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can get onto the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Or you can go to YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. You can even use Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And with that, we've reached the end of the show, the end of the IYA Year of Astronomy 2009. Uh, the end of the year and the end of four years' worth of the Jodcast. It's been a very enjoyable four years. Hopefully we'll continue on in the future. We've got some nice young faces adding in well, as people move out. They've, they're going to have to inherit all this and do all the editing. <laughs> I don't, don't envy that job. some lovely PhD students to do it below us as well. <laughs> but yeah, it's been a very enjoyable four years. It's been great fun. Um, for me, it's been keeping me in contact with astronomy. Actually, cutting-edge research astronomy, rather than dancing about in the planetarium singing. That's what I do normally. In the skirt. In the skirt. No, not in the skirt. <laughs> I've really enjoyed having Nick here because Neil and I started the Jogcast, I think, as so- pretty much as soon as Nick left, we got handed a recorder and a microphone and got sent to the National Astronomy Meeting. So it's quite nice to actually have Nick here with us. Yeah, it was such a, such a leap to actually just take on that sort of mantle from Nick. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Definitely glad I'm doing it. Are you complaining about the level of training that you received, i.e. none? <laughs> no, you guys are doing really well. Roy told us how to switch the recorder on. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it was training. <laughs> I mean, we've had to learn all this from scratch. Yes. We're, we're not professional radio presenters. We, we are actually read radio the instruction manual for the Marantz recorder. I think that's about it, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So hopefully we've improved over the four years. We're still here. People mm-hmm. are still listening, we think. <laughs> And we'll try and get Lessons better. Lessons for audience participation. <laughs> Not a sausage. One thing I think, guys, you have done, you have kept it fresh. I've listened to other astronomy, astronomy podcasts and other places, and I'm afraid there's a certain sort of, that becomes a certain, I've heard this before, I really don't want to hear that person's voice again. I think the fact that you had, sorry, I'm going to leave you disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> the, fact, the fact that you've managed to, get, to keep the people moving through, to have, to have more than one voice, to have, you know, um, has helped keep it, keep it fresh and keep, keep it, keep it lively. And I, you know, there's other things I've sort of listened to that's kind of stopped. So I don't know what anyone else was sort of saying, but there are, there are things that you're doing, I don't know if you know that you're doing that mean, mean that you, you, you retain audience. Because it's very easy otherwise to, to, to walk away. Oh, thanks for that. It's, 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 uh, yeah. it's good to know how we're doing things right. I think we're in now. Yeah. Okay, Megan's gonna have to disappear. The security alarm's going off in her building. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, okay, it so, um, stopped. Well, can we say a big thank you to Megan for staying up this night? Uh, so that leaves us to say thanks to Sir Francis Graham Smith for the interview and Chris Lintott for generally helping out. A big thanks to Adam Averson, Mark Perver, and Chris Tips for helping to make Jodcast Live run so smoothly. And finally, a big li- uh, a big thank you to all our listeners and to our studio audience for actually coming along and supporting us. Thank you. And so, until 2010...